Maggie's podcast, giving you so much more than medicine. Thanks for listening to this Maggie's podcast. Each week in the series, we'll focus on a different aspect of living well with cancer, whether it's the food you eat, the buildings you spend time in, or the people around you. They're here to make you laugh, talk, and think. This episode is all about men and cancer. Join DJ Johnny Walker for the first ever Maggie's Men's Hour. Hello, Johnny Walker here. Excuse the noise at a traffic, but I'm uh, at Charing Cross Hospital in West London. And at the end of the car park is this amazing kind of futuristic orange building. There's plants all around the edge of it. There's a most incredible roof. There's light that comes into the building. And this is a Maggie's Centre where some amazing work goes on. So let's go in and find out over the course of the next hour. Back in 2003, I was diagnosed with cancer, so I do know firsthand the challenges and the big change that that illness can have on your life. And that's why I wanted to come to this Maggie's Centre today to host the first ever Maggie's Men's Hour. So I'm sitting here at a big kitchen table, uh, I'm making cups of tea and coffee, I think, is a big part of what goes on in the Maggie's Centre. Um, we're going to find out from a host of men how cancer has affected their lives and also hear from some people who try and help them. On the show today, we'll be hearing from men who find it hard to talk about cancer. Because men don't talk about it. I've only talked to women about it. But there's a limit to what you can talk to women about. You can't go into the nitty-gritties. I can't understand why people like myself... Men, in particular, can't talk about their problems with uh, bowel cancer. Now, me, I can't shut up about it. We'll chat to comedian Omid Jalili about his experience of his mother's illness and we'll explore what effect cancer can have on your family life and your relationships. I won't be the, the kingpin in, in bed, if you like, like I, like I want to be, but you have to accept things. And it, it's not the be-all and end-all to be honest. It was for me, but I will overcome it and I will get there. The main thing is I'm alive and I've got an understanding partner and 99% of the time I'm quite happy. <laughs> we'll hear more from Graham later on in this podcast. This year, Maggie's commissioned some research on men and cancer and we found out that nearly two-thirds of men say they would have coped better with their cancer treatment if they'd have had more support. And nearly half of those asked said they felt just like a number when they were diagnosed. Hugh is a Maggie's Centre visitor. Hugh, thanks very much for joining us today. Yeah. So you've been diagnosed with prostate cancer. How did you actually find out? Well, uh, I had back pain for months and months. And eventually um, my GP suggested a PSA test, which 10 years previously he'd sort of put me off doing because it's such an inaccurate thing. So anyway, I went through with it this time and, um, yeah, it turned out I've got um, stage three and uh, rather a high, well, a, a pretty high-end Gleason score, which makes it um, it's inoperable and it's quite serious. But um, I've had fantastic treatment ever since and I'm, I'm enjoying life almost more than I had been. Did you put up with the back pain for a long time before you went to see a doctor? Probably longer than I should have, um, a few months. But they they did X-rays and they put it down to rheumatism initially for quite a few months. 
So it was a bit, you know, having exhausted everything else, they thought, well, we'll check for prostate. Frank is here at the kitchen table as well. What's your story, Frank? I had what is called an oligodendroglioma, grade 3, which is a type of brain tumour. I, again, a bit like you, it was a missed opportunity of diagnosis. Initially, I, had, I was getting a funny metal taste in my mouth and pins and needles in my left hand. Yeah, I kind of didn't think much of it. Um, it didn't go away, so I, thought I went to a drop-in centre and uh, they asked me what I did. I worked in the city at the time, so high stress, a lot of travel. So basically she said, well, if you really want to, I'll refer you to a neurologist to make you feel like a time waster. So I ignored it and it carried on. So I changed GPs and uh, my GP went, that's epilepsy, with the funny metal taste being the tell and uh, the lip pins and needles being a minor seizure. And so she referred me to a neurologist. We would take the kids to the Euro Disney that weekend. So um, Sunday night, sitting outside Pirates of the Caribbean, having had the kids in, got a call on my mobile from my neurologist saying, need to see you first thing Monday morning. Never going to be a good call. We're going to talk more about the effect that um, being diagnosed with cancer, the effect that it has on your working life a little bit later on. With us uh, at the table here in the Maggie Centre is Alison Faulkner, who's a clinical oncologist at Charing Cross Hospital. Alison, welcome to the podcast. What are the cancers that affect men? Well, the obvious ones are the ones that affect men and not women because of men's anatomy, I suppose. So you've got prostate cancer testicular cancer and cancer of the penis. But if we look at numbers of cancers which affect men, about a quarter of the cancers diagnosed in men are prostate cancer. The next commonest one is lung, and a very close third is bowel cancer. Um, Compared with women, where similarly you'd look at breast cancer, lung cancer, and then bowel cancer. Testicular cancer, as I say, small numbers, but big impact, because this is often young men, and you're looking on survivorship, um, they're often diagnosed in their teens, early 20s, and so there's a long time to go afterwards. Prostate cancer, because fortunately we cure a lot of cancers, we're left with a lot of legacy, a lot of problems afterwards. And part of what we're discussing today is the impact on people. What, why do you think men are more reluctant to get their symptoms checked out compared with women? I'm not sure. I think there's a little bit of as we've heard from Frank, a little bit of uncertainty about will I be taken seriously? Am I wasting people's time? Will I feel a bit stupid? And certainly if you look at studies and interviews which have been done on people diagnosed with cancer, um, people are quite happy to go to doctors with lumps and bleeding, but they're less happy to go with symptoms that they may not understand. So changing the way your bowels work, changing the way you pass urine, changing your voice, a cough... All of those things are, can be signs of cancer but probably aren't. And the problem is for the person concerned that they're a bit worried about being accused of time-wasting. But it's all about being aware. And I think among doctors as much as among the general public, the is this cancer question is terribly important. And I think my colleagues who see patients in what we call primary care, so the first doctor to see a patient with a problem, would probably be more aware now than they used to be. Are there any groups of men who are more at risk than others? For certain cancers, if you look, one of my big interests is prostate cancer. And um, men from the black community are at twice the risk of prostate cancer compared to men from the white community. And there may be a little bit less willingness to seek diagnosis. 
the information is quite unclear. That's a staggering fact, what you've just said, and mm. it, I would imagine it's not that widely known. Well, it's widely known among the health professions, and certainly if you go onto all the charity websites I've preparing for this, I've gone and had a good look, and on every single prostate cancer website there is the statement of the increased risk in, in the black population. And I think there's maybe a little bit of reluctance to say that out loud because of worries about political correctness. But it's a bit like I, don't get, su I get sunburn and somebody else doesn't. It's just a, a risk that comes with, with who you are and how you are. If somebody in your family has cancer, does that mean that you as a family member are going to be more at risk? It depends on the cancer and it depends on the age of the person in your family when they're diagnosed. So in general, if somebody in your family is diagnosed with, say, bowel cancer or prostate cancer or breast cancer at a young age, so say under 50, your risk would be increased. And also if more relatives are affected, then there's more risk. Also with us today is Matthew Dix, who's a clinical psychologist with Maggie's in Cheltenham. Matthew, welcome. Hello. So this whole subject about men being reluctant to seek help, is it true? It is true. That I think the facts speak for themselves, but um, it must go back a long, long way, really. Men are reluctant to see, be seen to be weak, and it's not a very macho thing to go and get help from people. They're always reluctant to talk about themselves, their feelings, and I think from experience, you know that to be true. But then at Maggie's, we try to do everything we can to break down those barriers and make it easier for, for men to come in through the door to engage with help and, and to talk to us. What do you get out of coming to the centre, Frank? A community, people to talk to, share, share war stories, tips, how to get through stuff, and, and it's a very, very supportive and interesting place. And it's, you can just come in, read the paper. On a bad day, I'll just come in and sit and read the paper, do the crossword and have a cup of tea. So thank you very much. I'm pleased to say that all our guests are staying with us throughout this podcast. And if you'd like to join the discussion, just use the hashtag more than medicine. The other aspect of discovering that you have cancer is you've got to break the news to the people you love. 70% of men undergoing cancer treatment said they were worried about how their friends and family were coping. Roger goes to a Maggie's men's group in London, and when he was diagnosed with advanced prostate cancer, he wanted to tell his daughters more about him and his life. So he did in a series of emails. The idea of writing down things for my daughters came out of uh, a clear blue sky. I hadn't really thought about doing it. And uh, I literally just started writing one day about the village where I grew up. I wrote about eight pages and then I sent those off to my daughters by email just to see if they were interesting for them. Hey Dad, thanks very much for doing this. It's very interesting indeed and I really enjoyed reading it. Perhaps you could add some memories of school into the summary. Or better still, write a whole series of chapters and put together a type of memoir. Love, la. Kiss, kiss, kiss. I don't think it's a cathartic process. I think it's more a sharing process. It's not really legacy. It's actually, it's exploratory because the reactions I get from my daughters are, are as fascinating for me, probably more fascinating than my thoughts are for them.
It's not usual that my dad is that honest and open with me. Going throughout our life, we've always had a good relationship, but he is perhaps a very typical man in the sense that he doesn't like to talk about his feelings and his emotions. I was quite surprised when he talked to me about his university years um, because he talked about a time when he really struggled sort of emotionally and sort of almost talked a bit about a sort of breakdown that he had when he was at university, which I had never known anything about. Year two melted into year three, and it was at this time I lost it big time. Looking back, it may have been a sort of breakdown. The impact of my mental state was that I froze at the start of the new academic year. I just didn't get out of bed. I slept or dozed through mornings and afternoons. I would move about the campus trying to avoid tutors. Rather pathetic looking back. Sadly, I needed help and help came there none. I am sure that chums and certainly Di were worried about me, but in this rut, only the sides of the rut were visible but it didn't stop Di's ardour. This remained undiminished. I don't think I could write it so convincingly for somebody else. Writing it for my daughters is a fatherly thing and it's a loving thing and it's a sharing thing. So that's really quite important for me. I don't think I could write quite the same way if I was writing it for a friend. Hi, Dad. I, like Egg, really enjoyed reading the latest musings. It's so interesting learning about parts of your life that we didn't previously know about. Please do continue writing as we're loving reading them and I'm sure many others would too. An obvious next step in the musings would be your wedding to mum and then your experiences of fatherhood. That would be interesting to read. Lots of love, La. Kiss, kiss, kiss. So, the wedding of the year 1981. What do I remember? In retrospect, I guess there were a thousand questions that I should have asked myself and your mum before committing to marriage. I didn't. He's definitely shown his more vulnerable side since being ill um, and he's told my sister and I about a whole host of things that we probably would have never known about otherwise. Um, in particular, his divorce with my mother. Um, she had always been very vocal with us and talked to us quite a lot about it, whereas I think partly because the way it had worked out, he'd moved out of the house. We never really got his perspective on things and got to hear, you know, how it had affected him. And obviously it had done, but I suppose we were, you know, quite a bit younger at the time and we didn't really appreciate the impact that it was having on him. You know, he has expressed sadness about what happened um, with the relationship with my mother, which is just obviously a sad thing to hear about as, as the daughter of a failed marriage, as it were. And certainly sort of perspectives of where he could have done things differently and has sort of regrets. And obviously people have regrets and that's part of life. But it's sometimes sad to think that, you know, things he could have potentially made things turn out differently if he'd acted in a different way. With the onset of uh, the cancer, my fragility, which uh, has obviously developed over time, that's probably given them a sense of my own mortality and their relationship with me may become more precious to them. It could be that what has happened is that, yeah, because we can see that there might be an end rather sooner than we'd anticipated, then perhaps that has, yeah, exercised us all. I really haven't thought much about fatherhood. I know what it was like to be a dad. It was great. Lara was fabulous and Egg was fabulous as well. You were both wonderful from day one and have been a source of immense pride for me 
and many others through your lives to date. Being diagnosed with cancer undoubtedly makes you think about, yes, what went on before and how valuable that was and how you failed to value it. And so what it tells you is that you have to seize the opportunities as they come up. If you postpone them, then there may come a time when you won't be able to take advantage of those situations. So the message is clear, yeah. You've got to do what you can, when you can, while you can, not wait. Hi, Padre. It was really good to read your latest musings. I think it's great that you're being so honest. It's probably the most honest you've been with Egg and me. Not that you're ever dishonest, but we all know you're not one for talking freely about your feelings. I'm really glad that Egg and I have been a source of joy to you, as you have to us. Even though I'm not a parent yet, I really appreciate your sacrifice of changing jobs. It must have been hard leaving all your friends at Amersham College just to provide for little old me. Thank you, Dad. Lots of love. La. Kiss kiss. Thanks to Roger and his daughter Lara, and also to Maggie's visitor, Piers Moth, who composed the music that you heard there. Frank, your dad to two children, they were very young when you were diagnosed. Yeah, they've lived with it all their lives, you know. Yeah, my daughter's 12, my son's 10. Um, so my son was born after I was diagnosed, you know. And, and he sort of, yeah, he calls it the grumpy lumpy. And he's, yeah, things like, I'm not allowed to drive. Um, he says, you know, he said recently in the car, I said, Daddy, if you didn't have the grumpy lumpy, would you do the driving? And I went, no, I was rubbish driving. Mum was always much better than me. So my daughter is very, very bright, and she throws out some really difficult questions like, do you ever get scared, Daddy? That's a real bugger to answer. But um, just had to be straight. You know, I, the way I said to her was, like, I feel I'm halfway through a good book, and I want to know how it ends. And I think she gets that one. And so it's sort of, you know, it's, 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 you know, I wouldn't recommend it. This wasn't on my bucket list. But, um, yeah, the kid's great, you know, it's and they're living with it. And we've been very honest with them, you know, and explained the science when we can. And they, you know, they're both bright enough to get it and, you know, interested. And, yeah. Hugh, what about uh, your family? Is it trying to be as honest as possible, a good way to go? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've never tried to be anything different. And... Um, I just felt a bit bad that I'd pulled them down with me initially um, until I discovered that the news was not as dire as had first been presented to me and that the treatments last more than nine months. Um, so, yeah, things have actually got easier and been looking up since then. There's a wonderful library amongst all the many great spaces here at Maggie's Centre. Have you been helped by any of the books that are in the library here? Yeah, I've uh, taken out a few. And um, one on um, art therapy, which is actually by a patient, um, is uh, got an amazing title, um, How Cancer Saved My Life, which seems completely paradoxical. But in the way that it's served as a sort of catalyst and a kick up the backside for me, I, I resonated with that title. Now, it's a great pleasure to welcome to our podcast here Omid Jalili, who's an actor and comedian. He's on a very busy stand-up tour at the moment. So, Omid, thank you very much for joining great to us be today. Here, Johnny. Thank you. So, your mother 
died of cancer. Mm. How did you find out that she was ill and, and when? I found out very late. She'd been battling with it for a couple of years and my parents are Iranians and I think they also were a little bit concerned about how their children would react to it. I mean, I was 29 years old and I was actually living in the former Czechoslovakia doing strange experimental theatre and uh, she specifically said, don't tell Omid because he'll drop everything to come home. And I think I only heard... Uh, six weeks before the end. So it was the, the final six weeks. And she actually passed away here at Charing Cross Hospital. And I remember her I saying, aren't you going to fight this? Because it, it was one of those skin cancers where there's only a 2% chance of passing away. And it was, she really slipped through the net. And I think there was a sense of her just giving up because she was a very joyful person. And uh, it's very difficult for me to even talk about it. I've never really talked about this before but it was it was being uh, she felt she goes this place is gonna kill me you know and, and, and I'd rather go and she kind of was making sure that it was sped up pretty quickly so there'd be very little fuss for everybody and I think she would have loved a place like the Maggie's which is just even the color coordination here is different the just seeing a kitchen she was a very homely person she would love as we're speaking now people are cooking and they're making wonderful soups and she would have been there getting involved with it. So I just feel that if there was a Maggie's there, she passed away in 1995, I think just when Maggie's was starting, really, had she had the benefit of this, it would have been really marvellous. Omid, this sounds a, a strange question, but in a way, was there a benefit of your mother's illness in, in that it brought you closer together? It did. It, uh, sometimes you do need things to be tied up and to have closure. I remember in the six weeks that we were with her, I remember just one night I woke up about one o'clock in the morning and I felt her call me. So I went to the hospital, and they said, what are you doing here? Because I want to see my mum. They go, all right, go on, she's awake. And she was awake, and she goes, oh I'm, oh, I'm glad you're here. I was thinking of you. And we sat and we talked, and we basically... She wanted to apologise to me for certain issues, and I apologised to her, and it was all very, very quickly done. It was, I was only there for about an hour, but everything we had shared together as mother and son was said. And it kind of had a wonderful closure. So I, and I felt that I've always felt that that was one of the most significant conversations I had. So when she did pass away, I was very much at peace with her. And I've always felt her presence with me in my work. Whereas maybe my brother and sister had a very different kind of experience. So I was very lucky that I had that particular kind of closure. So it was, uh, you know... I'm just glad that there was that period of time and we were coming to terms with it, that there was that one opportunity when you accept that she's going to go, that you just need to have things said and they were received very, very well. And that was a great positive thing in my life. Did you feel any anger towards your mum that she kept this illness secret from you? Yes, I did. I wondered why she didn't tell us. I wondered why she couldn't have shared that we could have found alternative methods to help her and it was something that she just felt I didn't want to disrupt your life and I think that's one thing I'll always remember that she felt her illness would disrupt other people's lives and I think that's what happens to a lot of people they they don't want to be trouble they don't want to be that if they're going to go they'll go peacefully I mean I've, I've only just started actually talking about it in my stand-up act because I was very affected by you know now we're on Twitter and Facebook and so many people that we know who are passing away through cancer, like David Bowie, um, Terry Wogan, Lemmy from Motorhead, and 
you know, all these people pass away and you read that they've, they've passed away after a long battle with cancer and, and, no, and no one knew it. And I just thought, you know, I just want everyone to know if I ever get cancer, I just want everyone to know I just gave up. It'll be in the news saying today, Omid Jalili passed away after an almost immediate surrender to cancer. <laughs> they even go, I'd go undiagnosed. He goes, Omid, you're clear. He goes, I'm gone, mate. He goes, Omid, get out of the coffin. I said, shut the lid and let me go. I'm gone, you know. <laughs> so I've only just started laughing about it. But I think I've found that actually humour is a very good thing. And a friend of mine, Harry Hill, I don't know if you all know Harry Hill, who had TV burp, he was a GP. And he became a comedian because he felt that <clears throat> when he went around as a GP visiting people in hospital that actually what would make people happier and actually accelerate their healing was laughter. And, he's, and he, he thought, well, I respect the medical profession completely, but I think his work was more in the healing power of laughter. You need, to come, you need to come to Maggie's Centre more often, get more <laughs> laughter, Henry. Could you ever make your mum laugh? Yes, and she was very funny. She, uh, I'll never forget, she told me some of the most outrageous jokes, literally a couple of days, you know, with the cancer, before she, could, before she lost the power to speak. Um, you'll find that the kind of gallows humour of people who are in that is, is quite... I've already noticed you've, you've said a couple of things. And, and I think that she literally would do jokes about people on their deathbeds. I mean, it was really hilarious. And I said to her... What, I've never heard these jokes. What are you doing? She goes, the best, best till last. She goes, best till last. So I think it was her spirit that actually helped all of us, and she kept her sense of humour till the very end. And I think there's something, there's something to be said about that. There was something, there's a, there's a power of the human spirit, which I found very inspiring in her. Matthew's uh, still with us, a clinical psychologist. How do you advise people um, in, in ways of telling their family, Matthew? I do advise people. It must be one of the hardest things that they have to do, uh, especially if, they, if it's children. I think sometimes people find it so difficult that they come to Maggie's and it's arranged that we facilitate sessions so the information's given as sort of an easy and open way as possible. We recommend that people are told, certainly children, sooner rather than later and given lots of opportunity to ask questions. I think everyone... It's different, and there's some people that just rather keep it to themselves, and they're very private, and we, we just have to respect that, and that's absolutely fine. But as a, as a rule, because it affects so many people, that one person having the cancer uh, and the ripple effects, as a rule, we encourage people to have support and communicate as much as possible, really. Are men different to women and how they deal with their family? They tend to prefer to keep it inside, I think, as a generalisation. But, yeah, through time, through um, gentle encouragement, Men can sort of help to just talk about things a little bit easier and, and then sometimes perhaps after several sessions with myself, then they're able to talk to their partners or, or their children. So it, there is a process, I think. Still to come on Maggie's Men's Hour, sex after cancer. We'll be talking honestly about the effect that cancer can have on a relationship and what goes on in the bedroom. Plus, how to live well with cancer and the benefits of a good Nordic walk. But first, this Maggie's Centre is one of 17 right across the UK, all offering support to people affected by cancer. So for this first Maggie's Men's Hour, we asked some centre visitors what they got out of it. Maggie's has given me an extra outlet of support and sympathy. I like to think it's a sort of an oasis where you can meet other people in a similar situation. We even put the world to rights over a cup of tea. I've seen boys coming out of Maggie's and going down to the radiotherapy department and going down like as if they were going to have a pint down the pub because 
they'd spoken to other boys in the prostate group and they were strut in. Maggie's is more than that word actually can, can contain because I was focused on dying. And then I came here to Maggie's, it started to change. So suddenly I had something what I would describe as hope. Maggie's has given me uh, my life back. Uh, without Maggie's, I don't think I'd be here now. Without signing like Billy Note makes, I haven't got a lot of friends. But as soon as you walk into Maggie's, you've got lots of friends. I dread to think what I'd be like if I hadn't had Maggie's. Unfortunately, I'm a widower, and to be at home on your own with nobody to talk to, I may even well be dead by now if I hadn't had Maggie's, if I'm honest and truthful. It's very difficult to put into words. Once I walk through that door, it's like as if somebody has opened a window in a, in a very cloudy room. It's an amazing, amazing place. As a charity, Maggie's relies on the generosity of supporters. If you'd like to donate, please visit maggiescenters.org. Now, one side effect of cancer that people don't always talk about is the impact that it can have on your sex life. Graham is from Merseyside and had his bladder removed due to cancer three years ago. He now wears a bag and has had to rethink the physical side of his relationship. Having a bag is not my sexual appetite tremendously. My ego's gone down. It's basically non-existent at the moment, my sexual life. That's me being sort of shying away from things. My partner, Joanne, is extremely understanding. She doesn't mind looking at the bag. She doesn't, it doesn't bother her at all. She loves me for, for who I am, and she's marvellous. I still feel a bit embarrassed when I'm the line there and, and if she's doing anything sexually t towards me. I, put, I, sort of, I sort of put my hand over my bag and cover it up um, because uh, I don't like her seeing it, but it doesn't bother her. And that's when you've, when you've suffered with something like this and you've got an, a lovely understanding partner, it's a great help and it's a great relief that, to know that somebody loves you for who you are and not that you've got the perfect body or, or anything like that. It, it, it's absolutely marvellous. With them taking the urethra out, it's defected my uh, function of getting an erection. I get sort of like a, sort of a semi-erection, and it might not ever come back fully. So I've also um, had one testicle removed because um, after my urethra was taken out, I got an infection in one of my testicles. That went black, and that was taken away, so that was another operation. Yeah, basically, I've been messed about down there. <laughs> it's frustrating, very frustrating, because I have needs, and my partner has needs. And sometimes um, you've got to get over your own selfishness and do things with your partner, whether you feel like doing yourself because you can't function the way you'd like to function. You do get urges, then you think to yourself, oh, do I really want to do this? Because I can't do the things that normal fellas can do, you know? So sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. You've got, to be, you've got to be in the right frame of mind. You've got to be relaxed. You've got to be, you know, lovey-dovey and things like that, you know? Basically, you have to accept it. It's, if you don't accept it, it will just eat away at you. That's the, the difficult part. 
It's I have come to understand and accept now I have a bag on the body for the rest of my life. I won't be the, the kingpin in, in bed, if you like, like I, like I want to be. But you have to accept things. And it, it's not the be-all and end-all, to be honest. It was for me, but I will overcome it and I will get there. The main thing is I'm alive and I've got an understanding partner. And 99% of the time, I'm quite happy. <laughs> Nick is with us, who's had prostate cancer. How did it affect your sex life, Nick? Um, it's affected it significantly. I had, um, I was diagnosed when I was 56, had the surgery eventually um, at the age of 57, and I elected the surgery, which is complete removal of the prostate and all the bits that go with it. So um, when they explain this operation, they say, well, of course, you, you may have uh, erectile dysfunction, you may not be able to get an erection. Uh, what they should say is you almost certainly won't be able to get an erection. Um, and also you'll have uh, dry ejaculations, which is another uh, euphemism for you won't get ejaculations at all because there's no ejaculation system left. So you can have little twingy-type orgasms, which is better than nothing, but it's a very much reduced sexual experience. And I think this has affected me. It's affected our, our relationship but not devastated it, it just, it's changed it. Um, and I think one of the things, that one of the problems men have is they carry on with libido until, until they drop dead almost, whereas women tend to lose it. And it's not clear to me to what extent our relationship has changed just because we're getting older. I mean, I'm nearly 70, my wife's 70. Um, but it has affected it. I think that, that there's other underlying things, is as a man you feel that you want to be able to have sex with any pretty girl that walks down the street. Um, I'm sure no other men have any experiences like that, uh, feelings, no. Um, but, um, and when We're you realise... We're very quiet here, <laughs> <laughs> Well, men don't tend to be very honest or open about their sexual feelings, and that's what I've found in the centre here. You find uh, people talking more openly about their their sexual experiences and I find that very um, uh, very warming really because it's it's really honest and uh, it's it sort of um, resonates with your own experiences but I have to say just listening to some of the other people here you know I had prostate cancer I'm kind of okay I'll probably go on for a few more years um, other people have ha have cancer that's you know just killing them some of our group here uh, died uh, and you saw them go from okay to, to bad to worse and then dying and it sort of brings it home to you that you're immortal but I wanted to I, I think one of the things that's good about this place there's many good things about this place is you can have a good laugh about things but quite frankly even though I really would prefer not to have had prostate cancer and not the operations I had I think the whole experience was a real rich experience and so many aspects of it I appreciate, particularly the way they looked after you in the hospitals. It was just fantastic. Alison is still with us, a clinical oncologist here at the Charing Cross Hospital. Maggie's Centre's right next door. Sex problems because of cancer, is that something you have to deal with quite a lot? If I'm honest, the doctors tend to shy away from that sort of thing. Or they're not very honest, as we've just heard from well, Nick. You you're may... exactly right. Yes. So there isn't much information on how common sex problems about sexuality are after cancer but 
if you ask, then you find them. And as all the survivorship initiatives carry on, and survivorship is a kind of buzzword, but it's about recognising that we're curing quite a lot of people but leaving them quite badly damaged afterwards. And so it's really important that we do deal with this. Now, it's not the easiest thing in the world to tell somebody they've got cancer, announce what you're going to do to them, and say, oh, and by the way, did I mention? So my, I must say I do mention but only really if I'm honest to my prostate cancer patients where we're starting them often on hormone therapy in my practice and taking away both their libido and their potency. Now, there are big differences. Libido is all about, am I interested? Potency is all about, can I? And certainly a lot of the treatments for prostate cancer will take away both, but so will other cancers, just the way you see yourself, you know, have I changed as a person? Am I a cancer patient now? How can I be a sexual person as well? And certainly there are some lovely studies done asking about erections, for example. If the surgeon asks the man, can he have an erection, 70% say yes. If the nurse asks them, it's 30. And if you ask in an anonymous questionnaire, it's about 20. So we're back to what men want to say and want to let out. Frank, how did you deal with it? Well, it, it, was, it was slightly different. Actually, when I came after my first craniotomy, my wife was scared she'd break me. She said she was worried that she'd hurt me by if we did anything. So, because you know, I had a great bandage around my head and I had rivets, I had multiple rivets keeping my head together. And Otherwise, you said, let's give it a go. Yeah, obviously, <laughs> we tried it. And then, and but now with the weakness on the left side, uh, it makes things a lot, lot harder. And so, yeah, it, 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 it hasn't helped, let's say. Because uh, everybody thinks, Matthew, that the sex is all about penetration, but there's a lot more to love and sharing mm. love. And penetration, isn't there? There certainly is. I work individually with men as well as with couples, mm. and I think um, quite often after a man's had like a prostatectomy, his prostate removed, they're very relieved to be alive, but then they soon realise that they can live another 10, 20, 30 years, and, and then it's all about quality of life. So it's then rebuilding a new relationship with their partner and finding intimacy and closeness in other ways certainly certainly not all about the penetration because i mean erection is a, it's a sign of manhood it's a sign of virility isn't it so a man's going to feel less of a man if he can't can no longer get an erection yeah which is not easy for a man is it no certainly not and feeling less of a man and quite different to the person you were perhaps just a year or two ago it throws a lot of men into uh, identity crisis uh, as well as just feeling very weak and vulnerable as well. They, they have a lot of um, confidence issues, self-esteem issues, and so they're certainly not the person they were before. Yeah. The other thing that men tend to come to a Maggie's Centre for help and advice is work and money. Because having cancer can really damage your work life or your job prospects. Frank, you worked in the city, so what happened to your... There was a pretty um, high-powered job you yeah, had. Yeah, I was... I, I, was the head of research at an investment bank briefly, and I set up my own fund. When I got very ill in the, and was sent to the hospice, I had to sell my stakes. So, yeah, it was, you know, but I subsequently got a job, and I started my career in the government in the civil service. And so I worked full-time. I have worked, and I'm, I'm between jobs at the moment. I'm looking for work at the moment. So financially, I, always, I was never a big... I never owned a Porsche. I, was, I saved a lot of money, and I had things like critical illness cover and stuff like that. So... Yeah, so we're doing okay. 
A person who works at, uh, at Maggie's Centre to give advice on welfare rights and, and benefits is Jay Shah. So you must see a lot of problems that people bring to you at Maggie's Centre about their work, about their finances. How do you manage to help? Yeah, basically people visit us at uh, different uh, point of time. They could be either self-employed, employed, or they could be unemployed. Or somebody just actively looking for the work, or somebody has been offered a new job. So they are being then informed that they have been diagnosed with a cancer, which sort of uh, usually impacts their finances and their life in general. So they visit us with regard to the entitlement to the benefits. So we do the benefit check for them, and equally at the same time, we look into their policies, insurance policies, whether they are covered for illness or critical illness, and equally at the same time, their pension as well, just to further explore in, into their finances and make them aware about their entitlement to the benefit. And because there are allowances, there are concessions, and there are provisions for the cancer patients, to ensure that uh, everything is, is being looked at very quickly, is being processed very quickly. We have developed the partnership with the government agencies, disability agencies, medical services, and local authorities with all different departments. As a result, once clients see us, we try to see the, and ensure that their benefits are being processed within days rather than weeks or months. Alison? One thing that I find, I, I send a lot of people to Jay. Poor Jay's forever getting emails. But one thing I do find with cancer patients is often they are reluctant to seek benefits. You know that they're not working. You know that life has changed immensely. We're aware of the pressure, you know, benefits. And actually explaining to somebody, this is your entitlement, sometimes having that very hard conversation of, you have paid in all your life and you are not going to get a pension because your, expect your, life, your life is limited. And what's so incredibly empowering about being able to send people to Jay is that he will make sure that people's lives can continue. You know, we've got a, a one patient in particular because we were able to sort out benefits. He's a key worker. He was going to lose his home. You know, it's desperately important that we do this and it's not all about scrounging and all those awful words that we hear. Frank, do you get some help by coming to Maggie's Centre? Um... I saw a counsellor and I talked through some issues. I did some mental spring cleaning of issues after I was first diagnosed and so, you know, sort of stuff that had been sitting there that needed clearing out, which I found very helpful. There are some great things that you learn here, like Freedom Pass. Yeah, if you're registered disabled, you get a Freedom Pass, which is free travel on all London, all London transport. And another one that I told a couple of people is that if you want to go to a gig, you get a free ticket, care a ticket. So I will heckle if I can come. I promise to heckle. I'll tell you what, I was in, I've got to tell you, I was in Reading doing a show one. I came out and went, good evening, Reading. And I heard this kerfuffle. There was a woman saying, oh, shut up, shut up. All you've done since you've come on stage is make fun of Reading. It's Reading, Reading, Reading. And I carried on. She goes, will you shut up about Reading? And the bloke next to her got up and left. Mm. And at half time, I said, can someone deal with that woman? He goes, yeah, it's okay, it's fine. And uh, I said, who was the bloke who left? He goes, that was a carer. Who left? He goes, when she gets like that, I can't handle it. <laughs> he just kind of got yeah, up and left. That's his job. Yeah. No, but it's, but it's a great thing. So you go, you get so a couple think, of I, I think My wife loves the Boomtown Rats. We went to the Boomtown Rats oh, there. Wow. And Republica. And what they do, my mosh pit days are over, but what they've <laughs> done is they've actually blocked from a bit next to the soundstage. Yeah. There's mixing there. So you're actually in the mosh pit watching the gig. 
I never thought I'd do a podcast where we talk about a cancer patient, talking about mosh pit fighting. <laughs> yeah. But you learn so many things. Like that, mm. that, that, even to talk about sex is a mm. huge thing because it must be a huge thing for a man who feels he's mm. so virile and then afterwards he goes, please, baby, don't touch me. I might break up like the Starship Enterprise <laughs> at Warp 9. I mean, that's a very, very... It's a, I mean, well done to the Maggie Centre for even bringing these issues to mm. talk about, even well, though I'm hugely uncomfortable with it. <laughs> Another thing that goes on at Omega Center and that they try and help people with is, is to actually live well with cancer. Uh, I mean, Omin's mentioned this soup that's uh, been brewed up here. Um, there's also meditation, there's art therapy, there's yoga, and eating well classes that are provided at Omega Center. People with cancer need more than medicine. Bernie Byrne is here, who's the head of the center here in London. So what classes do men tend to use a lot at, at the centre? That's an interesting question and actually uh, when we first opened we found that men, if they came in and they didn't see another man, they would stay for a cup of tea and very quickly go. So by gradually talking to them we found that the more men were sitting at the kitchen table, they were like bees to the honeypot, they would start to sit there and more and more of them would start to gather. So we started to look at what would they find really helpful for themselves and as Frank said um, sort of that physicality, being physical, looking at their identity, because particularly a lot of drugs, a lot of consequences of treatments, do change men. As well, Matthew said, you know, men's identity, they seem to feel there's a weakness or they're weak if they come in and talk. So we implemented a Men at Maggie session, um, which is purely just for them. Um, we've also run psychoeducational courses. So we have a fantastic eight-week course that Prostate Cancer UK have uh, worked in partnership with us, where men can actually... We bring experts into the eight-week course so we'll talk about sexual dysfunction we'll talk about incontinence and gradually because men are coming together on a week-by-week -week basis over eight weeks you find that they just organically start to gel and start to talk about these issues um, out in the open and through those courses they then start to dip their foot into the water so we've got Nordic walking we've got other um, yoga we've got Tai Chi we've got support groups and gradually, just together, they encourage each other to um, come to these groups. Or they just come and sit and have a coffee um, around the kitchen table, which is wonderful. I would add that Bernie is ruthless at getting men to turn up. I've had three <laughs> line whips many a time. You will come to this event or else. <laughs> I'd just like to text you, just encouraging you, yeah. checking how you are, yeah. bringing you to the centre. Yeah. Talking of Nordic walking, that's a walking when you use kind of, kind of ski sticks, uh, we recently joined a group of Nordic walkers heading off towards the Thames Embankment. How is everybody feeling today in terms of energy? Excellent. Excellent? Excellent. Superb. Nine out of ten? Oh, yeah. I'm Dave. 72 years of age, old boy. I've got liver gland cancer in the throat and in the tummy. And I've got prostate cancer in the prostate. Oh, we always have a laugh at the crap when I can keep up with them. That is... <laughs> well, I mean, before I go, when, we, when you're not here, when we come back, we have a laugh normally as well. I walk up and down, keep time to slow down. Because <laughs> the old boys always last. But I don't mind, they enjoy it. They're nice people. You don't do it as a race, you do it at your own pace. My name is Raymond Frimley. I'm 67 years of age. I was diagnosed with prostate cancer two years ago. Today I've got my results and I'm clear. We're all feeling fabulous. Yay, sun's shining, it's spring. Good. Good work. Bring the knees up, people. 
Nordic walking has been a great part of my recovery. I go out with a bunch of boys, women and that, and we have a laugh. Not only do we walk, we have a laugh. We've got a good trainer, Carolyn. If we've got any problems, you can always go and see her, like you can anyone in Maggie's. At Maggie's, we have a Nordic walk once a week. We walk for an hour, and it's always outdoors, unless the weather is lousy. I get a bit evangelical about the benefits of Nordic walking because it just ticks every box. In terms of the side effects of cancer treatments, Nordic walking can help manage almost all of them. You exercise at a level that is really good for helping combat fatigue. It's enough exercise, but it's not too much, so you're not going to tire people out. Because you use the poles, you also use the arms, so you get strength, you get power from the arms through the poles. So you be, it becomes a four-limbed activity. Nice work. And circle the knees. So you're opening out the hips. I enjoy it very much and it's brought me on 100% from what I was a few months ago. Mentally, I wouldn't talk to no-one about my illness, the family and everything. I just couldn't talk about it. Everything my wife said to me, I snapped at her. My son, I snapped at him. My daughter... Not so much, because I knew that she would break down. So I knew I was doing wrong, but since I've been coming to Maggie's, going to the gym, Nordic walking, I'm 100% different. So next thing's try and grasp. What you do is you get your momentum from the shoulder rather than the elbow. So if you try picking up the poles, just like a little kid would do toy soldiers, exactly. You swing the arms like that. There's something quite lovely about walking with people that I find helps them to open up so that they will start going there in terms of how they are mentally and emotionally. Um, there's something about being outdoors that seems to help them open up, and I see it daily. Um, and I hear some really interesting conversations amongst peers. You know, they're all in the same boat. To, a, to one extent or another, there's such a phenomenal empathy within a group of people like we've got here at Maggie's. I see, and I see the chaps talking, I hear them talking, and they will be talking about the weather and the football, and then they will be talking about their PSA and their hormone implants. And they can talk to each other in a safe place, in a place of understanding that I think they wouldn't do down the pub. I wish they did, but they won't. <laughs> My racehorse was running today. Well, I know you like a gamble. I've backed it. I've got a share in it. It's running in the 348 Ludlow. I used to be an heavy drinker and I'd stop outside a pub and I would start crying. I, was, um, I would do 20 points a day. Having cancer brings it to reality. and It's just a different way of life for me now, anyway. Hey, look, there's some... The Wembley Stadium Arch. Arch, yeah. Yeah. I never thought I would see something either. No. If you'd have seen the difference in them now, even myself, when we first come, it was all a bag of nerves, all on itch. But the people in here, they calm you down and slow you right down and treat you nice. Then after a couple, two or three, four weeks, you're back to normal. You don't even think of it. When we're walking some days, some other people shout Ah, uh, it's your lump. They go, pinned in the two, does that mean? Because that like, don't say that, I know you shouldn't say that. But they like, that's the sort of thing you go on, but they have a laugh. Nice, good working people. Very good working if it was your first one. Thank good you. stuff. 
pleasure. Right, tea. To find out more about how Maggie's helps people to live well with cancer, visit maggiescenters.org. Hugh, did you have a go at the old Nordic walking? Yeah, I have. Um, it's, it's great. It's really, really good. I have a pair of ordinary walking poles myself, but um, Carolyn would probably uh, criticise it, but I try and do the Nordic style now with my ordinary poles and um, walked the Seven Sisters last weekend doing just that. Nick, what have you done to well, try I, and help? I, I haven't participated in this programme. I'm just sort of too busy and I've been travelling a lot, but uh, I try and exercise, I swim, and I do um, body balance. And uh, I'm learning to balance but very slowly. So I try and keep uh, reasonably fit. Walking is great. I, I walked the Ridgeway this uh, summer with, do you know Bill Bailey? He, he was his 50th birthday party and he got a group of us. And we did that Nordic walking and it was exhilarating. There's a joy in just walking with a, with a bunch of people, which is like nothing else. Frank, there's a lot of things that you can't do. What, what did you manage to do to kind of help yourself? Um, it's, I do, I, I, I go out the house every day. Yeah. Get up, shower, shave, go out, walk. Even if it's just pops the shops for the wife, pick stuff up. You know. And like when I come to the Maggie's, I always walk from Hammersmith. And I walk back. It's the Fulham Palace road, so I'll pick a bus and try and beat it. <laughs> and usually do. Well done. Because it's, yeah. How often do you come to Maggie's? There's a monthly brain tumour group, so I come every month for that. And I come most Fridays as well. But I, I probably at least, at least a couple of times a month. And Bernie, how, what's the opening hours? How do you work um, that one? Strictly speaking, we're open Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. However, we also do a lot of evening work because obviously cancer just doesn't, the experience doesn't stop, you know, when, um, before people go back to work. So it's really important that people have that opportunity to come and get some support whilst they're still at work. So we run evening courses, evening support groups um, and an exercise class to give people that opportunity um, as well. And a lot of our centres also do family days um, on a Saturday at the weekend as well. Sounds perverse um, that people can live well with, with cancer, Matthew. I meet people every day living well. I was saying before about quality of life and people, I think, once they've, they've heard diagnosis of cancer, they're, they're motivated to make most of each day, really. Alison, it must be great to be in the hospital working as you do as an oncologist, but to be able to say to patients, you can go to the Maggie Centre, just in the car parks, right there. I quite agree. The trouble is, of course, the ones who really need to go there often won't. And Bernie knows that I've um, frog-marched people in on occasion. It's an incredible opportunity to have. We do sometimes have to be a little bit underhand about how to get men in. The course that Bernie's mentioned is actually a brilliant way in because a lot of men don't want to go to support groups for themselves, but they're willing to go to a learning opportunity. So they'll go to a course, which means they can sit and listen, um, but they might be a bit more reluctant to sit and talk and disclose but actually once you can get them in it's incredibly empowering for them and we tend to do much as regrettably you do with small children you say well I promise you can leave if you don't like it and very few do in practice so the point is that the Maggie Centre is such a wonderful symbol for everybody that there should be quality of life whatever state you're in you know, I think what, what, to provide quality of life uh, with people who are suffering with this terrible disease, it, I mean, at the end of the day, it's joy that makes you feel better. And I think the Maggie Centre brings so much joy. 
the communal joy, the fact that I come here all the time because there's free fruit and celebrations. And if there was a few more quality street, I'd be here every hour. But basically, it brings joy to the heart, and I think that's the, that's the major contribution it gives. I think that leads nicely into, isn't it, what Maggie um, felt, which is not to lose the joy of living yeah. in the fear of dying. Um, and, and I think, you know, it doesn't have to be cancer. It's any sort of um, thing that affects your mortality, you know, really stops you. It's like an emergency stop and you just about hit the window. And it gives you that opportunity to, to reflect. And it's very interesting because the Chinese calligraphy symbol for crisis can also be changed slightly to mean opportunity. Hmm. Um, and I think what we try to do within Maggie's is acknowledge, yes, this does feel distressing, this does feel like a crisis, but actually there are opportunities as uh, as well and it's just gently walking alongside people and supporting them to be able to do that I know my mother would probably still be alive now because a lot of people who are parachuted into this world of cancer especially she was an immigrant didn't really even understand I think she'd gone to a she was trained to be very respectful of English doctors without necessarily understanding what they were saying and I think had there been a Maggie's to walk with her to explain what was going on she might not have slipped through the net so quickly. Well, thank you all very much indeed for joining us today for this podcast. And before we go, let's hear some more from Maggie's men around the country on what they learned from cancer. Cancer has taught me to appreciate life more. Cancer is part of me. And therefore, I made a contract with the cancer. I said, if you kill me, you kill yourself. Let's make a deal. I'll let you live and I will live. Fortunately, I've always had a positive outlook on things, so my mindset is channeled towards beating the cancer. It'll not defeat me mentally, at least, and ultimately I'm not afraid of it. I've never, ever liked using other people's toilets. Well, of course now, I've got a bag that I can empty without having to sit on the seat. Cancer's taught me to make the best of a situation that you as an individual have no direct control over. You have to rely on the oncologist for the treatment and your family and friends for support. Cancer has taught me to talk to people. Don't buckle it up like I did. Because men don't talk about it, I've only talked to women about it, but there's a limit to what you can talk to women about. You can't go into the nitty-gritties. I can't understand why people, men in particular, can't talk about their problems with... Uh, bowel cancer. Now me, I can't shut up about it. Thanks again to Hugh, Nick, Frank, Alison Faulkner, Jay, Matthew Dix, Bernie Byrne and Omid Jalili. It's been amazing, actually, to sit here today and find out about Maggie's Centres and all that goes on. I wish there'd been a Maggie's Centre when I had cancer. If you'd like to find out more about how Maggie's helps people to live well with cancer, do visit the website, maggiecenters.org. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye now. Thank you for listening to this Maggie's podcast, which was produced by Loftus Media for Maggie's. We hope it gives you a taste of just some of the support we offer in our centres. Maggie's centres support anyone living with cancer, including families and friends, and it's all totally free of charge. For more information or to listen to other episodes in this series, go to maggiecenters.org. Maggie's podcast, giving you so much more than medicine.